Hi, my name is Alex Evans, and this is Composer's Concepts. This episode, I had a great chat with Leah Bertucci. We talked about her experience being an artist during the current pandemic going on, and how that is greatly affecting the industry. We also talked about how her music involves great and unique acoustic spaces, and how she approaches writing and recording her music. Let's head over to that conversation now. Hi, Leah. So thank you for being on the show. So just starting out, I was wondering if you'd be able to just uh, let everyone know sort of who you are, a little bit of your history with music and sort of how you got into uh, doing what you're doing today. Sure. Um, So my name is Leah Bertucci and I am a composer and sound artist and I work in pretty experimental genres of music. Um, I have played alto saxophone since I was about nine years old and um, I also have a degree in visual art, so um, my my background is music, but also pretty interdisciplinary. And um, in the last ten years or so, um, I've focused pretty intensely on sound and sound art and experimental electroacoustic music. I've I've seen a few things uh, sort of about your music. It's sort of described that you. You sort of like to uh, use acoustic phenomena within your within your music, and uh, mm-hmm. I was just sort of curious, you know, what what uh, what your sort of theories and how you view that kind of stuff for your music. Yeah, so um, I've always been really intrigued by the relationship between um, sound and space, and uh, when I was a kid, I lived in this town in upstate New York uh, that had a defunct cement mine in, in it. And I would go down there and I would play my instrument and the uh, reverberation was just really massive. And um, I never I never really understood exactly like what I was doing until later. Um, and I sort I started researching um, I started looking into psychoacoustics and I started looking into um, this idea of the meta instrument. So um, it's this concept where, you know, the instrument itself is, uh, you can call it a proto-instrument. The sound that comes from, you know, the bow of a violin scraping across its strings. Um, And then the meta-instrument is the relationship between the sound of the actual instrument and the way that it uh, resonates within a space. Um, so that relationship is actually very interesting to me because I think that it can speak to the way that um, subjective perception of human beings um, can really, you know, shape and color our experience of music and our experience of sound. Um, I'm really intrigued by the way that uh, if I play a show in one venue, it sounds a bit different than if I take that same set and play it in a different venue. So I'm kind of interested in, in these notions of translation and subjectivity and the way that it really relates to like our bodies uh, in space. There's like definitely like 
sort of talks of like different frequencies out there as well like 440 versus 432 and like and stuff like that and then there's i think it's like 528 or 527 as well that's sort of like a reparative frequency um i had a i had a friend uh who was playing in a band as well and he said that they actually played uh, a set when they were tuning in 440 and they played a set in 432 and he said that the energy in the room was like totally just a lot more positive and it was you know a, a stronger energy when they're playing at 432 mm-hmm. in between like between those different sort of more i guess those are more two more common frequencies for tuning yeah you know um prince was actually really into um the idea of 440 as as not the correct frequency um as not a true a um he was really into i think it was 431 hertz as a um but you know this idea of you know what is in tune or out of tune has changed over time um in the west you know um our whole tuning system is something that is comparatively new, um, you know, having come about in, you know, post-Bach era. So, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in a lot of medieval music. Um, I'm really interested in Pythagorean tuning, so just intonation, um, because those alternate systems of tuning speak to a more, like, natural resonance. It's actually the tuning system is based on the way that, um, you know, the physical uh, vibrations of sound work and the harmonic nodes associated with it. So in a way, it's actually more of the physical world than um, equal temperament is. And sort of in preparation for this as well, I watched a video that, a presentation that you had on on YouTube there. It was the, the Four Dimensions presentation that you did. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it was kind of cool because you were saying in that that you you know you sort of assess the frequencies within that space. You you did a, it was it took place in like a big tunnel under a bridge, right? So a couple ways to analyze the uh, sort of acoustic characteristics of a space. Um, one is by doing impulse response tests. So that's just putting um, a short burst of sound into a room. Uh, to measure how long it takes for that sound to decay over time. Um, and then another method of figuring out what the room tone of the space is, is by um, putting a, a sine wave sweep through it and then doing a harmonic analysis of what nodes kind of jump out as that sine wave um, progresses. Yeah. So that that was the way that I figured out how I was going to um, deal harmonically with um, acoustic shadows um, was based on the room tone of the space. Acoustic shadows, um, those pieces, like it was, from what I understood from the video, you, it was sort of like a, a multiple day exhibit that you had set up and you were playing the pieces within that space. Um, when you actually went to go record acoustic uh, shadows, which is sort of a, a two a two-piece uh, project that you created. Um, mm -hmm. where, where you had that four, like the exhibit for the Four Dimensions presentation, um, was that where you also recorded the uh, the pieces for the, that actually made it onto the Acoustic Shadows project? So um, the Acoustic Shadows release is a document of a project that I did uh, in Cologne, Germany. And it was in the hollow body of a bridge that goes over the Rhine River. And that was done in July of 2018. Mm -hmm. That 
project um, was actually three pieces. The first was for alto saxophone, the second is for brass, and then the third is for percussion. And for the release, um, it is just the document of the, um, the, brass, the brass and the percussion pieces. Hmm. So um, pretty much the way that it worked is that there would be um, a musical performance in the space, and then fragments of that performance were captured um, with this like software automation that I designed um, mm -hmm. to then be played back as an installation in the space. So it's kind of three performances with no hard endings. Um, it's like a performance that turns into an installation. Okay. So um, the presentation that I did where I was sort of explaining all of it was at the Ableton Loop Festival that was um, later that year. Um, so what you hear on the record is um, sort of a creative document of uh, the performances themselves. Um, the original performances were a lot longer, and also the pacing of them were designed for people to be walking through um, you know, a three-dimensional space. So the way that I was really conceiving of the project had to do not only with um, time, but also with space. Um, all the players were spaced out throughout the bridge, um, and also the uh, audience was able to roam. Uh, you could walk from one end of the bridge to the other while the performance was happening. So there was a really um, very, you know, multifaceted, subjective experience of the piece. No two people really had the same exact um, experience. And so I was kind of interested in, in that, like, leeway in, in what and how that's like multi-stable condition um, to have people not in fixed positions, but sort of making their own experience um, through moving through the space. So how do you, do you find it a little difficult as far as translating that to an actual like recorded that you're putting on an album? Because yeah, like you're saying, it would be very difficult or no two people would, you know, have the, this, the same exact experience within the space there. So I'm just wondering how, how the approach is for taking uh, music that was in an exhibit like that and then also putting it into a body of work that people are listening to on headphones and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. So it's um, it's a really interesting process of translation that happens when you take um, a project that is really four-dimensional. So uh, something that, you know, exists over space and time um, and is very, you know, immersive um, and you translate it into kind of like a two-dimensional compression of what that is. You know, I'm taking eight channels, 440 meters um, of material, and I'm translating it into a stereo field. So there is a sort of like spatial collapse that ends up happening. Um, I had never really intended to release this project as, um, you know, a conventional LP. Um, it is a site-specific work. So, um, it, the pro it kind of came about because Spitfire Audio um, SA Recordings had approached me about doing a release. And I went back and I, I listened through the documentation of what I had. And I thought, you know, this is compelling enough that I think I can sort of reconfigure it um, to be, you know, more of a conventional release. I edited down like a 45 to 50 minute piece into like a 20 minute side. So there was a lot of reshaping that I had to do within the editing process to make it sort of digestible for the more conventional listening format. So instead of, 
you know, I called it a document before, but it's kind of, that's kind of not correct. I think it's, um, it's really more of just like reimagining uh, that project. Um, it's, it's not so much about creating an accurate reproduction of the original experience, but making something freestanding that can, yeah, sort of stand on its own as a compelling piece of music, I hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, with, uh, with, with that type of music and like this project, was it ever experimented as far as like mixing it in a surround sound field versus stereo and stuff like that to sort of try to capture the, the space a bit more? Yeah, I mean, the problem with doing that, though, is who has a 5.1 system at home? Yeah. You know, like most yeah. people are going to be listening in the stereo field. So doing a 5.1 mix certainly would help with the spatialization aspect. But, you know, in terms of playback, you know, most people just have, a, you know, headphones or a stereo system. Um, yeah. Um, and with like with your your writing process, do you do you normally find the spaces first and then write pieces of music around the space, or do you have these pieces sort of basically conceptualized, and then once you find the space, you apply that that piece of music to it? It's more like I have just from my experience having messed around in really resonant spaces. Um, and, you know, basic knowledge of acoustics and, you know, architecture. Um, I have sort of like a set of techniques that I kind of look to, to experiment with and see how they, you know, relate to the, the space, how they sort of exist in, in a space. So there, there are a set of, there's like a language that I've developed, um, a musical language that I've developed to, yeah, exploit the characteristics of um, a space. But it's really about experimentation and it's really about being in the space and playing with, you know, its characteristics. So I would say I would say it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, a mixture of coming in with, with preconceived ideas, um, but then also allowing the space to kind of like guide where I go with it. Are you deciding upon like different instruments as well based on like like how the frequencies in the room are reacting or is that like yeah 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 definitely um you know one of the reasons that i chose woodblock um for acoustic shadows is because the woodblock sort of mimics um an impulse response i mean it basically is an impulse you know it's a very short non-pitched burst of sound that really sort of like ricochets through the space um so yeah, the instrumentation choices are definitely dictated by the characteristics of the space, I'd say. I meant with like sort of getting the players to like lean to different directions depending on where they were at to sort of shoot the sound uh, against certain certain like surfaces in there? Yeah, I've done that before. Um, I, I didn't really do it so much in this piece, but um, I have other pieces in which uh, I have another brass octet that I wrote for this gallery space in, in New York. And um, I had, at one point I had the players, you know, brass, um, brass are really great because they're very directional instruments. Yeah. Like a trumpet has a very focused sound. So um, I would have some of the trumpet players in this other piece uh, stand close to the wall and then turn around in circles. 
Um, so you can hear a sort of like muting of the sound as they play towards the wall and then the sound reflects off of that wall. Um, come into reality? Was it just sort of an idea you had and you just sort of tried it out and it, it created something cool? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just being in the space and kind of analyzing what is going on there. And, you know, I was able to have the octet um, in the space for a while and we just kind of like, I had them play with different techniques and then whatever sort of stuck, stuck. Definitely when I was like going through school myself, like we had, we had a unit with, with acoustics and it's definitely something that's always interested me. Um, like, yeah, obviously like just sort of going into different spaces and just either, either just clapping or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. and just sort of listening to the sounds of the room. Um, totally. do you, do you like, do you sort of like the approach of acoustics as far as like treating rooms and stuff like that as well and, and sort of creating studio spaces and stuff like that around it? I've done, I've done a bit of research um, in that area and I know, I know a bit about it, but you know, there are people who have really dedicated their whole lives and careers to um, acoustics and, and building studios and stuff like that. So I like to think that I take kind of a pseudo-scientific approach where, you know, like my experiments are informed by, you know, scientific research about physics and acoustics and stuff like that. But really, it is an experimental process um, because I, I'm not that good at math <laughs> and I can't yeah. really like calculate the way that like, you know, a full range sound, you know, how the, all the frequencies of a full range sound, you know, um, reflect off of a surface. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's, that's not quite my background. So it's kind of like, yeah, I would describe it as like a pseudoscientific process. You know, I think at the end of the day, music definitely should just be more of a fun thing than like a, you know, than, than a headache, I guess would be the best way to say it. Yeah, and it is fun. And it, and it is like, it is a really rewarding process to allow, um, you know, moments of discovery to happen. Um, and I, you know, I, I really do believe in like the experimental spirit. Um, I believe in being able to absorb and um, understand the world around you. So I was, I was curious what as well with like the pieces that you, you're right there, you know, you said you, you, you even had to cut down like a 45 minute, 50 minute uh, sort of piece of music. Um, and what, what, what would you say are like, are some advantages and disadvantages of at least, I guess, more on the like releasing an LP side of things, uh, putting out a two track LP that's, you know, two pieces at like 24 minutes a piece, basically, versus sort of cu cutting that down into like multiple movements within the piece. Yeah, I mean, um, there were certain things that I wanted to remain true to. And one of those things is that they were long form works. Yeah. Um, the way that I the way that I conceived of the pacing of the original pieces was that, um, you know, the bridge was 440 meters long. So it would take a person a certain amount of time to walk from one side to the other. So I wanted to, I was trying to like calculate that into the pacing of the piece. Um, so when that factor is eliminated, um, you know, for the LP, uh, the pacing ends up being a bit different. And so I guess it's just, um, for me, it was just a question of, of figuring out what is something that is like digestible and cohesive. Um, I really did want to like create a continuous experience. 
And I'm not afraid of like long form works. Um, yeah. So I guess it was just a, a way to remain true to that one aspect. And like you were saying as well earlier, there's the uh, the three sort of pieces that you had for that project. There's the alto sax one for the first one. Um, was there any like specific reason that that didn't end up on the acoustic shadow, like LP? I just felt that um, I felt that the brass and the percussion pieces were stronger, and I felt like they were more coherent um, juxtaposed together. So yeah, there's like a secret alto saxophone piece that yeah. maybe somebody can convince me to release <laughs> in some kind of format at some point. With the alto piece, did you like experiment with using different like different size reeds and stuff like that as far as how it affected the sounds in the room? Uh, not really. I, um, I have been using the same reeds since I was in high school. Um, I'm really not like one of those super like technical horn players who's like very like intense about about that kind of stuff um yeah i i i play on a vintage saxophone that was given to me for free um and is like very quirky so it's um yeah it's really like um i've found a range of extended techniques that work really well for my specific instrument and so I just kind of like use those. Um, yeah. How do you go about finding the different spaces that you, you decide to do these exhibits and, and, and record in? Like, how do you, cause you know, you said that you sort of have recorded in New York around where you, where you're at and also all the way over in Germany and stuff like that. So how does, yeah, does, how, how do like you find the different spaces and decide to travel and, and, It depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have a thing for trespassing. Like I really, <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy trespassing, and I always, I always have, ex you know, enjoyed exploring um, derelict places yeah. um, ever since I was a kid. And so, you know, some of them, like some places, you know, like a friend will tell me, oh, you know, you should check out this one tunnel, or you know, like I'll hear about certain places that have interesting acoustic phenomena. Um, and then with, uh, with other places sometimes, so the bridge project, that, that is a festival that has been happening for uh, about 25 years. Okay. So a lot of other um, very amazing sound artists like um, Phil Niblock and Marian Amache, uh, Marcus Schmickler uh, have all you know, done projects in that space as well. So um, the, that festival, uh, their organizers just sort of got in touch with me and uh, said that they were interested in, in curating me for uh, that year's festival. So that, that one actually just kind of came to me. Sweet. Well, that's definitely cool. Um, yeah. I, yeah um, and as well with these different spaces that you're recording in, I was sort of curious um, if, you, if it was a thought that you had or anything like that, but do, do you think that like those you know, giant concrete spaces or just, you know, whatever the area is, do you think over time, like being there for multiple decades and decades that that space sort of opens up almost like, you know, like a 200 year old violin or like a 60 year old guitar and stuff like that? I mean, I would think that the way that a space ages um, certainly would change its acoustic condition yeah. over time. Over time. 
Um, you know, I think about the uh, grain elevators that I recorded in in Buffalo. So that was um, a structure that was the largest cast concrete structure ever built at the time, which was around uh, in the early 1920s. And they're cast concrete um, silos. And um, as they age, you know, different, um, you know, like they were once full of uh, metal. Um, and eventually that metal rusted and then um, sort of fell away. So, yeah, I would imagine that there would be some kind of very interesting thing that happens over time. I wonder if there would be a way to to uh, to document that. I mean, I'm, yeah. I think that like if you're an acoustician, there's ways to do modeling that would um, account for different materials in the space. Mm. I know that by doing some um, waveform synthesis, wave sorry, wave field synthesis, mm -hmm. Um, there's ways of, you know, yeah, like accounting for those changes. With the, like, with the, through SA Records, um, or SA Recording, sorry, um, there's a sample library that you also put out as well with the Acoustic Shadows project. Um, I was just curious, sort of, what, uh, what was your approach with sort of getting the samples and everything recorded for that? Yeah, um, I really love this aspect of the release because it allows people to make their own music um, with the same sorts of sounds that uh, appear on the album. Yeah. So um, for the sample library, we, um, we actually went into this big uh, former freezer space in London that was very resonant. Um, and then we sort of like, I, I broke down what the um, musical language of Acoustic Shadows was um, and then recorded those, that language as um, a sample library. So it's, it's really cool to see the way that um, people with different sorts of musical backgrounds that really have nothing to do with mine um, can use that material to make something that is like, that I would never make. Yeah. Like, I love that, the, the fact that people the fact that you can actually like use this material and like create your own adventure with it. Um, I mean, I imagine you unfortunately can't travel with the same players you'd like to at times um, if you're recording or, or performing at places. Um, do you sort of just sort of ask the players to sort of improvise as well in like throughout the idea as you're performing live shows and stuff like that? Well, when I perform live shows, um, I usually do it solo or with like one or two other musicians. So unfortunately, I'm not at the point where I can travel with like a full ensemble. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's usually just me for solo performances. Um, but I try to find ways of um, exciting the space that I'm in. Um, whether it's you know using a certain quality of PA or just taking extra time at sound check to properly EQ everything so that it like you know sits well in the space, um, my live set that I perform I've designed in a way that it's it's really not site specific. Um, I can tailor it to wherever I am. It was like there's a couple of videos out there that I've seen as well that of you know sort of you doing the, your live setup. Uh, I was just curious sort of how that has evolved from like when you first initially started performing live to where it is now. Has it has it changed much or has it maintained relatively the same? Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot. I mean, um, you know, years ago I started uh, playing with, uh, I played bass clarinet and uh, I 
played a lot with feedback, with microphone feedback, and um, more electronics. Um, so, you know, I've switched instruments to alto saxophone almost exclusively these days. Um, and I've been playing flute lately too. Um, I guess the tapes uh, have been introduced, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I started working with tape more. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely evolved. It continues to evolve. Um, it's funny because I always, you know, it takes a while for a record to come out. So, you know, I always feel like I'm, I'm by the time a, one of my releases happens, I'm already onto like the next round of interests. Like I'm already changing and doing things differently. So um, it always like, you know, is sort of playing catch up with myself. It's still work on stuff given the given the circumstances going on right now as well yeah for sure i mean working on stuff is one of the ways that i am able to like mentally deal with yeah. what is going on <laughs> you know like as far as i'm concerned it's therapeutic for me um mm -hmm. to be able to maintain a creative process and sometimes it's more difficult you know some days are harder than others but yeah. um it's not really even about producing a lot of finished material. It's about um, taking time in the process. Mm. So um, what I've been doing lately is um, making recordings of myself, sort of just like moving air through a wooden flute yeah. um, and really close miking that um, to explore the intricacies and the textures of the human breath, mm -hmm. um, which is actually something that I've been, it's an interest of mine that I've been sort of cultivating for a number of years, mm -hmm. um, but it seems particularly relevant right now somehow <laughs> with um, yeah. what's going on with, you know, this respiratory pandemic that we're dealing with, you know, the idea of human breath as being so essential to life um, is really, I think, in the front of people's minds. Yeah. So I've been recording that. Um, and then I have like another microphone that I place outside my window. Um, and you can hear a lot of like neighborhood sounds, um, sirens in the distance, helicopters flying overhead. Um, my neighborhood in, in New York is pretty relaxed, but you know, there's definitely, you know, you can hear what's going on, um, mm. from a distance and it's very, I don't know, like I, I feel the, um, I feel the desire to make a document of this moment because it is so singular in our existence. Yeah, it's it's definitely affecting the entire world. It's not just a a one, you know, it's not located in one place. So it's it's definitely something yeah, that everyone really will be is. able to relate to. Yeah, it's something that like all of humanity has to grapple with right now. And I think that my duty as an artist is to help process and like understand this situation this situation that we find ourselves in. I remember um, you were saying in, in, a, in another video I watched as well that uh, you like to sort of create almost like a, a meditative process with the music as well. Um, has the has the breathwork stuff been in like another way to sort of to sort of introduce and and work with that meditative? Yeah, totally. And be, I think um, especially this these recordings that I've been making um, relates to meditation because the idea of uh, like in in yoga you know, uh, pranayama, like mm -hmm. the idea of like, you know, focusing energy through the breath, um, totally relevant. 
And, yeah. um, and also I just, I noticed that breathing just like neurologically, it does something. It like calms you down. It mm. makes you think differently. If you, you know, work yourself into a frenzy because you read the news and are horrified at the state of the world, which <laughs> I am regularly as an American, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, breathing, like engaging in that kind of practice really can, um, be a comfort and, um, lead to like a greater clarity of thought. How is the current situation sort of affected, uh, like different live performances and stuff like that? Like, have I mean, I mean, I imagine you've probably had to cancel absolutely everything. Yeah. I mean, pretty much I don't expect to perform live other than through a screen, um, until next year. Um, you know, some people are being a little bit optimistic about the fall, but frankly, I, I don't see it happening. Um, and I, and I'm not convinced that it's safe to, to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't like the idea of, uh, putting anybody at risk because like I need to perform live. Yeah. Um, I think that's really whack. So, um, you know, we're in a situation where I, as an artist, and as a U.S. citizen, have to really evaluate what my future in this country is going to be. Um, because, you know, I've always known this, but it's like particularly true right now, is that the U.S. government does not care about its citizens. Mm -hmm. And me as an artist, um, I mean, my work is totally undervalued. Um, and it's, it's always been a struggle to be an artist living in the United States, especially in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and now, like, you know, I really, I'm in the process of, like, reevaluating um, how I'm going to arrange my life so that I, continu I can continue to make work. Um, yeah. It's really, it's really not easy. And the way that the music industry has um, transformed over the last 20 years um, it, it's very difficult for artists to make any kind of living, um, especially if you play experimental music. I mean, I guess there is, like, thankfully with technology, like, you know, there is, you, you know, the possibility, like you said, performing through through a screen, basically. But that's such a weird experience, you know? <laughs> yeah. like, em like, I have to say, emotionally, it's so weird to play a set and then, like, get no response, yeah. you know? Like... <laughs> Like, you can't tell if you just did something or not. Like, it's <laughs> such a, it, it's totally bizarre um, thing to do. And I think it's not, I mean, I think that there's ways to use the live stream as, like, an interesting method. Um, there's things about the medium that you can exploit uh, in an interesting way. I've certainly seen a few, like, very cool approaches. Um but I don't think it's like a real substitute for the experience of seeing something live. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Both from like a technical standpoint, the compression of the audio, um, and from like a human standpoint, like there is something really powerful about being near somebody who is making music. Like there's, there's something that is not replaceable about that. You know, there's, there is an exchange of energy like within those, within you know, venues and performing live, right? And obviously playing off of that energy is 
definitely like a necessity and crucial for certain people as well. So it's definitely, yeah, it's totally. definitely a hard thing. Um, what, like, what's your opinion on like certain countries have been doing like the drive-in concerts and stuff like that, where they're all staying in their car and then an artist is performing on the stage? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really cool idea. Um, I definitely like that idea. I personally, um, would love to do something like that. I would just want to like see what the audio quality is like. Um, yeah. I assume it's it's like a drive-in theater type of thing. Looks like just sort of, yeah, basically just a drive-in. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that could be like a really interesting alternative to, you know, keeping people safe um, and still allowing like the live experience to happen. Um, I don't know like if that would is something that would happen here in New York City because not that many people have cars. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely into people thinking creatively through the problem. Um, yeah. And my hope is that, you know, I, I feel like live music and music in general is pretty, like, undervalued by people. Um, you know, you can just, like, listen to something for free on Spotify, which, yeah. like, doesn't generate any royalties <laughs> for people. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, now that there's, like, this greater awareness of how much performing artists, not just musicians, but all performing artists are struggling yeah. um, in this scenario that people will actually start to, you know, value live music and value music in general more. Yeah. Um, that's the hope. Yeah, like maybe this is an opportunity to change the model of the music business so that it's actually more sustainable and more friendly to artists that, um, it's not just like C the CEO of Spotify who's making a millions of dollars a year that like yeah. maybe, um, you know, the actual artists can <laughs> make some kind of living. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember I remember reading an article or something um, and sort of like a discussion, like all these different streaming platforms all offer different royalty amounts, you know, per stream. And it's just sort of like, what is that? Like what? Who decides that factor? Like, you know. Spotify offers like 0.05 cents per stream and you know Apple Music offers like 0.07 just as an example but like yeah like mm -hmm. who's yeah. who's deciding those factors and like why why isn't that reevaluated for sure like it's Yeah, I mean as far as I'm concerned I think that the most artist friendly platform is Bandcamp um mm -hmm. because it actually encourages people to purchase music um yeah. You know, I mean, the people who, the people who set the royalty rates are the um, companies themselves. So, so of course, you know, they want to monetize it to their benefit, um, rather than the people who are actually supplying all the content to their site. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's actually like a really, um, it's a really like relevant paradigm to what's going on in our world in general is that um labor the exploitation of labor mm. um is something that is has gotten so perverse over the past what i don't know 50 years 60 years now um yeah. that labor is not valued and um a very few people are getting very wealthy off of the backs of you know the many mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think that there's so something fundamentally uh, wrong about that. Yeah. Um, if I if it were if it were up to me, my music wouldn't be on Spotify. Mm -hmm. But it's not up to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Spotify yeah, yeah. is basically used like streaming platforms are basically used by record labels as you know a means of promotion. So the idea is that somebody hears it on Spotify and then goes and buys the record. Unfortunately, that leap has not really been made. No, People yeah. just listen to it on Spotify and then just keep listening to it on Spotify. Um, so I just I, I hope that like the consumer and I hope that this is like, you know, part of the shift in consciousness that this whole pandemic might facilitate in people that mm. people might actually value labor more and creative labor. Sort of curious as well, like when I was asking you, um, you know, with with the LP project in specific, like how it's just two two pieces, like, you know, I guess through iTunes more, you know, uh, for this example, but you know, like I think the most you can put like a single track at is like a dollar ninety nine, right? So as far mm -hmm. as as far as yeah, like having the exact same amount of labor into that one piece that it could take someone to write a whole album, right? And then you're getting one ninety nine for that body of work where someone's getting, you know, ten ninety nine for the whole album, right? Right. Yeah, totally. Hmm. I mean, and you know, like I'm not really against um I'm not against digital music and I'm not against peer to peer sharing networks. Yeah. I'm more I'm more annoyed when, you know, one person at the top makes all the money yeah, and yeah. it doesn't trickle down. Like this idea that it trickles down is, uh, I think a really false hope. Yeah, def definitely. I hope like the, the situation allows a lot of people to reflect on that and adjust for the future beyond this. Um, well, and I think that there is also a certain amount of like responsibility that we as, um, consumers, and we as, um, you know, artists and producers have to, we have to demand certain things. Like we have to, we actually have to unionize and we have to demand that we, n that we don't get taken advantage of in the same kind of way as before. Um, I think, I think unfortunately with like the, with the live performing side of things too, is, it, is it's the artists themselves that are, that are a contributing factor as well like at least specifically in my area like there's you know certain venues that you know they only want to pay a hundred dollars for for an artist or a band to play for a whole night where mm -hmm. and whereas you know if people are going to accept that accept that price and play play shows for a hundred dollars it's not going to you know it's not going to really set you know a, a baseline price and you know actually putting money within you know, these artists' pockets and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's why, you know, among my peers, like, there's been a lot of talk of um, a creative musician's union. Um, so, you know, the musician's union, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the States, the musician's union is more for people who are, you know, playing in orchestras, um, doing commercial work and stuff like that. But I, I would really love to see the formation of, like, an independent creative musician's union where yeah we like set prices um for, for performances or for licensing or you know that kind of stuff and there's like this um there's a real power in collective bargaining you know that's why unions have 
That's why, like, we don't have child labor anymore. That's why we have the eight-hour workday. That's why we get lunch breaks, supposedly. You know, um, all the all the more humane aspects of labor have been um, brought about by unionization. And so I don't see any reason that um, musicians, independent musicians, can't also organize in the same kind of way. Yeah, like, it's, you know, it's it's kind of hard to put a price on, on a piece of art, right? And music definitely is art in my, in my opinion. So yeah, like, you know, you see more so with visual art paintings and stuff like that, you know, people can sell their paintings for $60 and then there's stuff that's worth millions and millions of dollars. Right. And it's, and you know, who's to, who's to decide what piece of art is better and that it's one's worth millions of dollars over $60. Right. Yeah. I mean, at least with visual art, you still have um, a physical material object yeah. involved. With music, the art object is dematerialized. You know, I mean, you can like charge $20 for an LP, but then there's always, you know, the digital reproduction. That is what most, that's how most people listen to music anyway. So when you have the dematerialization of the art object, then monetization becomes like really sticky. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, the way that most musicians for the last 20 years have been able to monetize their creative life is by performance. But now we don't have that. And we also don't have any kind of real compensation for royalties. Yeah. So we are in a situation where we really have to reimagine what the model for um, music is going to look like. Yeah, like, yeah, like you're saying, there's as far as it seems people cling to physical you know physical things to to be able to have versus you know yeah. a, a digital version of the music and yeah there's only really you know i guess vinyls have made a, a bit more of an appearance in like the last five ten years so that's been and cassette tapes what's that sorry also cassette tapes True. um yeah so it, it's it does beg the question, you know, if there if there is something else that we can that we can come up with that is be is you know something that we can sell as a physical item that is you know a form of monetization, like you're saying. I like the idea of a streaming platform that is um, a nonprofit entity. Like, what if Spotify was collectively owned? Yeah. And instead of getting you know, instead of getting um, 0.084 cents per play, what if you got like, you know, 50 cents per play? What if you got 25 cents per play? Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I like, I like the idea of uh, collective nonprofit being the, the major streaming platform. Allowing the artist to sort of take control within you know, their own, their own destiny or their own career within the industry is definitely, yeah, a much more beneficial route to go down. Yeah, I think so. Another question I had about the sample library as well. Um, mm -hmm. With sample libraries, typically when they, you know, in the editing process, they put the samples through like a denoise process. Um, and I was just curious if, you know, given the style of your music, did did that process still occur with the sample libraries or were you sort of wanting all that extra noise within the samples to be there? 
Well, I think that the noise that you hear um, is really, because the whole idea of the sample library is to, it's making a meta instrument, you know, it's making that, you know, sound that is the instrument and the space together. So if you denoise it too much, um, then you lose the beautiful resonance and the kind of textural aspect of the sound. Yeah. So um, yeah, there there wasn't much like filtering that we did because we really wanted to preserve that resonance. Um, yeah, for sure. Um... It's kind of a it's a different kind of approach to most than most sample libraries. You know, it's really about um, it's it's a boutique library. It's really about creating. Um, a unique sound yeah um rather than a perfect reproduction of an instrument you know it's it's super super affordable as well it's only you know 30 dollars us and you know and, and and euros and pounds i believe as well so it's super you mm -hmm. know super great quality for the price as well if you know even if you want to just sort of you know buy it to to see what the sounds are and everything like that like it's yeah it's definitely a very very uh, affordable avenue to get to get you know your sound and stuff similar and create your own yeah, sound I from think, it. Yeah, it's definitely affordable and um, like I said, I've just been really like inspired and amazed at how people have been able to make so many different types of things with it. Like I love that idea that my work can spawn other works. Um, yeah, and where, where like sample libraries are triggered mostly, you know, with MIDI keyboards and stuff like that, do you yourself, being an alto sax player, do you, do you ever experiment with like, you know, like the, the UEs and stuff like that and different, different ways of getting MIDI into a, into a DAW or a computer? Yeah, um, I, you know, I've always been really frustrated with MIDI and with most, um, sample libraries because, um, it just sounds so conventional. Mm -hmm. um, it just sounds like, oh, it's music. Yeah, easy, boring. Like yeah. I, I use so I use a lot of extended techniques, and you know there are definitely some sample libraries that are all about extended techniques, but um, it usually hasn't been my way of of working um, because I find that it sometimes it can create a sound that is really generic. Um, yeah. Whereas I like to really exploit the sort of quirks of an instrument. Mm. Um, but I do, I do think there are some really great sample libraries um, that, you know, have that in built in, um, like extended techniques. There's some really nice ones through um, Earcom. Um, but uh, in general, I, I take a more kind of, um, I guess, organic approach mm -hmm. to composition. I mean, like with sample libraries, they're, they're you know they're a great tool. I'm not going to say that they're not, but um, yeah, like they they're helpful for yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah, you you only have so many samples on the same note, depending on what type of sample library it is, and there's really no, you know, you can't really evolve beyond that, you know, those samples that are there. So it's it's kind of hard to get yeah, like the more a more of an organic and natural approach at times, and I know a lot of people say that those, you know, sample libraries usually are meant for a tool of writing. And then when you actually want to, you know, release the piece of music, hire a bunch of live players and stuff like that. But 
unfortunately that's the given, way that usually but, it's done yeah yeah unfortunately i believe with you know especially given the times and where artists are, are greatly underpaid it's not always entirely possible for them to release music using live players all the time but uh yeah well yeah. and part of the the thing about this library is you know like it's all musical language that I use in my work. So it's it's actually like really great just for me. Like I'm personally psyched about it because yeah. I can just like compose the music that I would want to make anyway mm -hmm. um, and not really need to like re-record stuff yeah. um, because the library is so specific. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a thing a lot of people do. Like, you know, Hans Zimmer, for example, like, you know, he creates a whole bunch for himself that he never shares with anybody so it's definitely you know it can mm -hmm. be it can be a tool for just yourself do you do you yeah do you have any any secret weapons there yourself like do you have any sample libraries that you don't share around i do actually awesome. um yeah i mean i i do a lot of sound design for theater and dance um so i kind of you know amass a library of sounds that i make in my studio um also like ambient field recordings and stuff like that. I, I sort of have like a whole library of things that I can uh, draw from. Definitely, definitely nice to have your own arsenal of, of tools that, uh, that no one else has, definitely. Yeah, and that way when a director says, uh, we need something kind of like shimmery and goopy at the same time, I can be like, oh, okay. Yeah. I think I might have yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> A, a lot earlier I didn't and I didn't touch on it but uh, you said that there was some software uh, that you had sort of created as well there with um, sort of testing the rooms and stuff like that um it was just like impulse response tests okay yeah I didn't create any custom software mm -hmm. um, but I was using some like extra plugins to do like acoustic analysis um, yeah, I guess we can we can move on to some some more fun little questions. Um, okay. What uh, what would be like a, a dream project for you to work on? Is there like a specific space that you really wanted you really want to work in, or is there a specific you know person you'd like to write for? As far as like a director, maybe. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely um, I have a degree. Like I said, I have a degree in in, um, in photography. Um, and I'm really, you know, active in, um, experimental cinema. Um, I, a lot of my friends are filmmakers and very oriented to the visual world. Mm -hmm. So, um, I really love to do more film scoring. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, you know, want to work on certain types of projects, um, that are more experimental, um, or just a little bit more interesting than, you know, a conventional mm. kind of film. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that, you know, that I certainly see more of that in my future, um, mm -hmm. doing film scoring. Um, I also, you know, do want to continue to travel and do site specific work. Um, one place that I would really love to go, uh, is the, um, let's see, I think it's, I think they're on the North eastern coast of great britain um there are these um parabolic dishes that are made out of cast concrete um that are sort of uh facing the ocean and 
what they were designed to do during the war, during World War II, I believe, or maybe World War I, um, was to, uh, you know, sort of focus sound uh, from the ocean so that people could hear ships coming in, um, you know, that might be attacking the coast. Um, so there are these, um, yeah, like acoustic reflectors that are there, and I would love to do pieces for those um, or explore those. For sure. Um, is there anywhere that you'd like to travel that you haven't been able to is, and explore different places in and check out sounds? Oh, so many places. Um, I was supposed to go to Athens on my last tour. Uh, the last tour that I was on uh, started on February 24th, and I was in Portugal as uh, every the whole world just became consumed. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of that tour, I was supposed to go to Athens, and I was really looking forward to that. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't make it out there. So I'm hoping next year I'll be able to go back. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like a really cool place. Never been myself yeah. either. Um, yeah. uh, what uh, What would be your favorite film score in the last like year or so? Oh, um, let's see. I would say, you know, a lot of the um, Johan Johansson scores um, have been really amazing. Uh, he did the score to Mandy, I believe, that horror movie mm -hmm. with Nicolas Cage, just being like at 11 the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Movie's crazy. Mm. Um, I thought that the, I actually, I wasn't familiar with this composer. Um, I saw uh, the film The Lighthouse. Uh, I thought yeah. that the sound design in that one was really compelling the way that um, the diegetic sound and the scored sound sort of interacted, um, you know, that sort of like low pulse of um, the, the, the foghorn yeah. uh, being integrated into the score with like low uh, wind instruments. Mm. Um, I thought that that was really beautiful and um, yeah, definitely like an interesting use of uh, diegetic versus um, orchestrated sound. I'll ask you about the lighthouse because that was that was actually filmed like an hour or two from where I'm located. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so it was definitely you know crazy for a lot of people. There were you know Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe were coming down here. So, well, I'm a huge Willem Dafoe fan. Like back from when he was part of the Worcester Group days, mm -hmm. um, and I think he's you know one of the amazing actors of our time for sure um you know that that movie is pretty i was actually surprised at how extreme that movie is um how deeply weird it gets um, yeah I, w I was just a little bit yeah i was surprised i mean i'm used to like, like i said i'm pretty active in like experimental cinema like stan brackage and you know essential cinema um so i'm you know i'm pretty familiar with um, you know, extreme structuralist film. Um, and for like, you know, a independent, you know, film, um, I, that, that's not, you know, experimental underground film. I was really surprised at how weird that movie got. Um, yeah. and how it explored all the aspects of like male relationships and masculinity and, isolation and um yeah it was i was surprised uh, it, it's 
I find I find more and more these days too. There's movies that are being made that are are weird for the sake of being weird, and they're not actually just sort of like a you know an idea that someone's running with. Where this one feels like a very sort of organic natural progression. Like the you know the creator wasn't like the writer for the film wasn't making a weird film for it to be weird, right? He was just sort of making a film, and it you know ended up being a little weird. But it it, it feels like it was a very yeah, sort of organic thing for that writer to to make. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, it's an extreme condition that they're um, illuminating, Mm. right? An extreme condition of isolation um, and of like, you know, physicality, you know, the physical experience of being at that place, you know, it's extreme. Um, And so... Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I thought it was, it was really great the way that they sort of took it out. Like, it got very out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was kind of weird, too, because it's, like, black and white the whole time, and it's, you know, in a square format. It's not widescreen and everything, so it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very different and very unique, for sure, especially 2019 release. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, Did you see The Witch? The Witch, I did, yes. Um, yeah, Robert Edgar's other film. Yeah, I did see that one. That one was that one was weird as well. The uh, the ending for that one was a little <laughs> a little 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 spooky, but uh, but yeah, I, I did. It was see pretty that scary. I thought that one was pretty scary for sure. Yeah, I've only seen it the one time, uh, but yeah, I have a couple of friends who have you know they've seen it like three or four times now, and they love it. Yeah. I think The Witch is more of like a conventional horror movie and um, The Lighthouse is kind of, I don't know, there's something different about it. Um, I, I, I hesitate to even call it horror movie. Yeah, and it, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, a period piece basically. It's, you know, and it, it, it really, really feels like it. It's like not, you know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like it's trying to immerse you in there. It really captures, I feel like, the time that it's taking place in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so, is there is there anything else that uh, that you have on the works at the moment that you'd like to like to talk about at all? Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I'm working on right now um, is just uh, like I said, the the flute pieces with field recordings. Um, yeah. I've also been doing a lot of tape pieces, so kind of like manic work. On on one hand, very quiet spacious subtle flute pieces that involve you know the breath and very ambient kind of recordings and then on the other hand these like very dense um harsh noise tape um collages yeah um so i'm you know just kind of like honing that body of work and um you know i i don't want to be too I think there's a lot of pressure for artists to um, release right now yeah. because we can't yeah. perform. So, you know, everybody's trying to, you know, remain very visible. Mm. Um, but I don't want to, I always feel like I need to let a body of work kind of like sit and ferment for a certain amount of time before um, it's ready to like be out into the world. So, yeah, I'm just kind of like letting that body of work develop and pickle. And I like you were saying as well earlier, like when you're, you know, when you release a project, you're basically already on to a new a new idea. 
do you find it mm-hmm. do you find it a little difficult sometimes like having to obviously when you release a new project you're you know sort of inclined to promote it and everything like that do you find promoting that and talking about that a lot do you find it sort of pulls you away from what you're currently working on you know i think that my entire creative life um has common themes that i explore from one project to the next um and it's i'm not like i don't go from one project to a completely different thing i i see it all as like the same or similar lines of inquiry that i'm exploring through different methods well yeah uh well thank you for thank you for joining me for the podcast it's uh been kind of a a nice nerdy talk between the two of us i feel like we yeah uh, thanks for having me on yeah absolutely um yeah well yeah thank you for being on the show and hope you take care yeah thanks that was my conversation with leah bertucci you can find leah on instagram and please go check out acoustic shadows on spotify apple music and all other streaming platforms if you have any questions comments or if there's a composer you'd like to see on the show please send an email to composersconcepts at gmail.com And if you like the podcast, please leave a review. It really helps grow the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening, and please take care.